Uh, our first scripture reading today is from Psalm 6. Um, it is officially the season of Lent uh, in terms of the church calendar, and so we're kind of changing over these first scripture readings to reflect that reality. Um, I don't think that as Protestants we need to be too, too stressed or scared of Lent. We can, we can think of it simply as a time that we are journeying towards the cross. We are, we are learning what our sin looks like, what it cost uh, on the cross for it to be paid for. And so during this season, we're reading a number of the Psalms. Uh, you'll see they're not, not quite in order, uh, but a number of the Psalms that help us reflect on our own state before a holy God. And today you'll see uh, David's Psalm 6 is one of the more sad and lamenty and, and repentant uh, Psalms that we have. And I think it's going to be really helpful for us as we, as we contemplate this church season. So other David uh, is going to come and read it for us. Not the David who wrote the psalm, of course, but uh, David, if you would read it. Thanks. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Check, check. We're picking up uh, our series in First Samuel. We took a break last week. Our, our friend Chuck was here. Uh, we did we did a psalm, but we're picking up our series in First Samuel. And the reason we've been looking at 1 Samuel over these past months and for the next little while is because we're understanding how God reigns and rules as king. We see him raise up priests and leaders and kings, and we see him lower and put away priests and leaders and kings. And God is sort of putting everything right in Israel. And today, particularly, we see this very encouraging story of how after 20 long years of Israel struggling and being under the thumb of the Philistines, they're repenting, they're turning back to God, and God is visiting them again and doing stuff. We'll get into it in just a second. Before we do... Um, Back middle panel of your bulletin, 1 Samuel 7. Lex is going to come and read it for us. Please follow along as he does. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away their Baals and their Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out and the Lord fastened on, uh, fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And when the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were rooted before Israel. And the man of Israel went out at Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel for Ekron, from Ekron to Gath, and, the Isra- and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace between, or there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and as he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, he judged Israel all these places, in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. I am battling a cold, and so I'm going to do my best to not crack or sniffle or whatever too much into the microphone, but I may need a drink uh, once in a while. Uh, Samuel's back. It's been 20 years since we saw him. I know it's only a few pages, a couple chapters of scripture, but in Bible time, a lot has happened. For the last 20 years, the Philistines have been ascendant. They've had Israel under their collective thumb for as long as really anyone can remember, two decades The Ark of the Lord, which we tracked for a few weeks, it's safe, but it's in this private house in in this town, kind of far from the center of Israel life. During the 20 years, what happened? We only have one verse to say what's happened. It says, Israel was lamenting after the Lord. That's in verse 2. We didn't have it here. We started at verse 3 today. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they have been realizing that all the wreckage, or they've been realizing all the wreckage that sin has been causing in their life and nation. They've been understanding, oh, this is what happens when we abandon God. We've seen now where the path of sin leads, and for a long time, decades, they've been sad about it. But it appears, based on what we read here, that they are finally ready for a change. Now, do you know the feeling you get, maybe the start of a new year, maybe the first nice day of spring, 
maybe just a random Monday, that feeling like I'm ready for a change. I, I need to get healthy. I need to go for a run or start exercising. I need to change my wake up time. Something needs to be different. That feeling that you need a change is this internal sense that you can't keep going the way you have been going. Now, some of us change pretty easily and others of us change slowly. For Israel, it took them 20 years. So if you're like, I'm a slow changer, you're probably not as slow as Israel. It took them 20 years to realize oh, we need to be different. We, we can't keep going the way we've been going. Now, the Bible word for change, especially if you are changing from sinning to not sinning, is just called repentance. And repentance just means this. It means to turn. It means to go a different way, to go a different direction. And this is really what we are seeing from Israel in today's text. They are turning, they're going a new way under the leadership and the direction of this guy Samuel. They decide today will not be like all the days, all these 20 years of days that have come before. Today is a different kind of day, a new day. And we see in this text what I'm going to kind of call the anatomy of repentance. We see what it is, we kind of see what it isn't, we see some of its parts. And here's how I want to, I want to break it down. I want to talk about first about repentance in the heart, when he talks about dealing with all these idols they have in the land. Then we'll talk about repentance in action, what happens when the Philistines come calling with their army. And then we'll talk about God's help in repentance. Now, verse 3, it really feels like we are entering the middle of a conversation that Samuel is having with some of the people of Israel, but we don't hear their side of the conversation. We don't hear any questions or comments or concerns that prompt Samuel's response. All we hear is what Samuel says. So I think the best way to understand what's happening in verse 3 is if you kind of scroll, look all the way down to verse 16 to understand that what Samuel's been doing this whole time is he's been going on this circuit. He, he makes this trip between all these prominent places in Israel. He traveled between Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And you're like, I don't know what any of those are. doesn't really matter. These, these three kind of prominent towns. And then, of course, he'd get a little bit of you know, time back home at Ramah. He's like a, a circuit riding pastor. He's got this trusty steed. I hope he has a donkey or something, you know, just going from town to town in Israel. Uh, and I think what he's doing as he's going there, he's not only judging, that is like deciding court cases, civil disputes, he's also preaching. He, he, he's like a, he's a prophet, priest, and king kind of all rolled into one. And I think he's preaching the message we see back in verse three, return to the Lord with your whole heart. Put away your idols. Serve God alone. If you look carefully at the grammar in verse 3, the text says he was proclaiming this message to all of the house of Israel. Everyone was hearing this. So I think it only makes sense that as he's doing this circuit, every little town he comes across, he, he tells them, return to the Lord with your whole heart. Put away your idols. And I think it's kind of reasonable to assume that Samuel's been doing this circuit, traveling, preaching, ruling for years, and has got no response. And maybe think of him like an oil prospector in like Texas or something at the turn of the century. He's just out on like the plane or whatever it is in Texas, just drilling holes like, nope, just tumbleweeds, you know, more dust and rocks and whatever. Move to a different plot, drill another hole, no, nothing, tumbleweeds, the, the big Texas sky, but that's, you know, that, that's all. But then one day, this little oil prospector, it's different. He hits a gusher, right? One day, the message lands uh, like never before. He preaches the same message. He drills the same hole to the same people. And, with, and if you look at verse 4, there's not a lot of fanfare, but Israel's like, okay. <laughs> they, they, they just sort of agree. Like, what happened? Was, was there a different, you know, we don't know. They just agree. They say, okay. Now, what exactly are they agreeing to? Let's take a little slightly closer look at Samuel's message. The first step is that Samuel's been preaching is, if you are returning to the Lord, 
then there is something you must do. And here's why I point this out. Samuel is telling the people, if you want to return in your hearts to God, then this return must be much more than an intellectual shift. If you decide, if, you, if you're really going to go for it, Israel, it must manifest itself, this repentance must manifest itself in concrete actions. And of course, the inverse would be true. If you return to your old gods, then that itself is proof you are not returning to the Lord. You can't have it both ways. This is comparable to telling maybe your spouse or your roommate or whatever, I'm going to set my alarm clock earlier for tomorrow because things are going to be different. And you're like, that's a good first step. Telling, telling someone you're going to do it, great. But if you wake up the next morning and you're like, turn off the alarm clock, you know, snooze button, whatever, and it's the same old morning, then, then you're not actually changing. You just sort of made a decision that you didn't follow through on. Samuel's laying it out for the people. If you want to repent, if you want to turn back to God, then you can't keep doing what you've been doing. You've you got to make a change. You've got to put away these other gods. You've got to return to the Lord. When the alarm clock sounds... Don't hit the snooze button, get out of bed, have a different morning routine. Now, what other gods have they been worshiping? What's Samuel asking them to put away? Well, in verse 3 and 4, it says they've been worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, who are those gods? Those names may be, may be foreign to you. I think a bit of background will, will help. Baal was a male god, a Canaanite god, and he was believed to be, by the Canaanites, in charge of crops and rain and weather. Okay, so typically, uh, people went to Baal's temple, to, to, to Baal, to sacrifice to him when they wanted their crops to grow and they wanted to have a good harvest. And if you think about it, the, the society right now in Israel is extremely agrarian, probably 90, 95% agrarian. The harvest is essentially the entire economy. A good harvest is, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine in our sort of more diversified world how important it was, especially when it could mean starvation or famine if it doesn't go well. So Baal is extremely important, you know, to them, uh, to the Canaanites at least, because he's in charge of crops and rain and weather. Ashtaroth was different. Ashtaroth was a female goddess, and she was believed to be the goddess of fertility. If you wanted to conceive a child, if you wanted your, the children you already had to be healthy, you'd make sacrifices to her. You'd go plead for her help. These are traditional Canaanite gods. And additionally, these gods are not worshipped in the way that we think of worship. Christian worship involves things like, well, you've seen it this morning, singing, praying, uh, giving money, you know, uh, whatever, reading God's word. But, but worship of Baal and Ashtaroth was quite different. It involves sacrifices, burnt offerings, you know, animals and, and food offered as sacrifices, but it also involves sexual rites as part of worship. And essentially what, what happened, without being too crass, prostitutes were employed by these religions, and if you wanted, you could go sleep with a prostitute at the temple as part of your worship of, of these gods or goddesses. So it's like, that sounds really weird, but chapel and brothel were, were sort of linked. They were the, the, they were the same thing in these religions. So if you, if you kind of put that together, in the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, we have this potent combination that would have been hard to resist and hard to give up. I, you want to turn the mic down a little bit, Tim? It's a little echoey. Uh, we, it'd be hard to give up. On, on one hand, it would have felt good. It would have appealed to the flesh. It, it, doesn't, it, it sort of feels good to go to the temple. And on the other hand, this god and this goddess represented two of the most important aspects of life in ancient Israel, procreation and the harvest. And my point is this, when, when Samuel tell, goes to the people and says, give up your Baals, give up your Ashtaroths, he's not, not just saying, oh yeah, I know you have a little idol in your house, just stop bowing down to it. He's saying, stake everything on the God of Israel. 
Give up all your other points of leverage. Give up all your backup plans, all your hopes and dreams, everything you're, you're basing it on right now, and only trust God with those things. Trust him with the harvest. Trust him with your present children or the children you haven't been able to have yet. Trust him against your powerful enemies. Oh, and also, by the way, give up that which feels kind of fun and sensual. It's not a small ask. It's quite a big ask. Repentance, turning to the Lord, forsaking idols. It involves forsaking idols that are really hard to forsake. It involves giving up things like, that's really hard to give up. It's taking these risky steps to trust God when it kind of feels like part of you wants to go a different way. Now, we don't, we don't have Baal and Ashtaroth anymore, as far as I know. But that doesn't mean the idols are gone, right? Rather, as John Calvin famously wrote, uh, your heart and mine, it's a little factory of idols. You, you, have, you have assembly lines, injection processes or whatever, dedicated. It is just pumping things out, producing things we'd rather trust in than Christ. For instance, some of us really want to be in control of our lives. And when we come across a person or a situation that, that feels out of control, we really struggle with that. We get, we get anxious, we get pushy, we can't sleep. And then when Samuel slash the Holy Spirit comes along to us and says, hey, you got to give that up. you got to return to the Lord in this area and trust him with this situation. Stop trying to control everything in your life. You're like, Ew, that feels kind of risky. Or let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that you have four children at your house. And hypothetically, you sometimes get angry with them. And sometimes your frustration boils over and it scalds everyone who lives in the house. And Samuel, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, hey, you gotta leave your love of control behind and serve God only. And for a long time, Ben, you felt justified in your anger. You felt pretty self-righteous about your anger, but it's not good anger, it's bad anger and it's, it's wounding people. And sometimes acknowledging that feels incredibly risky. It feels, like, it feels like being asked to give up something that's very close to who you are. But this is really what repentance is. Repentance of the heart is not simply to acknowledge that you were wrong, but it's, but it's a, a repudiation. It's saying, I can't trust in this anymore the way I used to. I want to give you one more example, something I've been thinking a lot about recently. It's kind of close to home for me. Economically, times are tough. You all know that. Church pays me well, but just like everyone else, just like all of you, we have to make choices in our house about where we spend money and where we don't spend money. And I don't like having to make choices. <laughs> what I would like is to not have any stress about money and of all the, re the reasonable, you know, all the reasonable things in quotes. And it's really easy for me to spend a lot of time spinning in my head about money or to get stressed about money, or to, to have money feel like it's occupying a lot of my time and attention. And I'll tell you, I'm being honest, it takes spiritual effort, real spiritual effort on my part to trust God in the area of finances. Because just left to myself, it's like, well, I kind of wish I was rich. I kind of wish I didn't have to worry about money. I kind of wish I didn't have to make hard choices about are we gonna spend it on this or spend it on that. I, I don't really wanna give up the things I want. And it sounds silly when we say it out loud, but like, can't I have it all? Is there, is there a problem with, with having it all? All you who love money, put away your bales, put away your ashtaroths, and serve God only. This is what repentance of the heart looks like. It's saying, I can't go back to trusting that thing that I sometimes trust. But let's talk about part two, repentance and action. That's like the first part. We get our hearts straight, but then look what happens. 
So first of all, Samuel's out walking the country. He's preaching. Israel responds. Verse 4, Samuel's like, okay, meet me at Mizpah. That's one of the places, you know, he was traveling to. I'll pray to the Lord on your behalf. This city is in kind of central Israel, right in the middle of Israel. It's north of Jerusalem. That's helpful. Which Jerusalem wasn't even a a Jewish and Israelite city yet. Uh, But all of Israel gathers at Mizpah. And Samuel is like, let's, let's do something strange. And it says they all draw water. And imagine like drawing it out from a well, you know, like cranking that handle, like the bucket's coming up or whatever. And then they pour it out before the Lord. Now, biblical scholars, they fight about what this means. They're kind of divided. Some of them say, well, maybe it goes with fasting. That's mentioned in verse 6. Maybe, they, maybe it's sort of symbolic to say we're fasting from food and water. It's possible. Perhaps the pouring out of water was symbolic of them pouring out their hearts to God, really confessing their sins, as it also says they're doing. Um, we, we aren't sure. But what we do know is that Samuel is leading them in a corporate communal type of prayer and repentance that for modern Canadians feels a little bit weird. <laughs> like they are doing something all together. And why? Because we can assume pretty safely that not everyone in Israel was guilty of abandoning God. Right? I'm sure there were some who were faithful, yet all of them are here fasting and repenting and confessing their sins together. I know for some of you, depending on what kind of tradition you're from, corporate confession, the way we do in our services here, feels a little strange. Maybe some weeks I read or pray that prayer and you're like, doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> I'm not guilty of that sin that you're bringing up. But listen, corporate communal repentance is actually quite common for God's people. We, we see it all through the Old Testament, especially. And look, should you confess your own personal sins to God? Of course, please do that. But the community also at times gathers together and, and they repent together and they seek God together. There are times that this makes sense. So at this point of the story, if you're an Israelite, this gathering at Mizpah, it's kind of like a revival meeting. There's prayer and repentance is, is happening. Some people are dumping out water or whatever. Samuel is leading the ceremonies. He's offering prayers. It's, it's all great. This revival tent meeting or something. But if you're a Philistine, you hear about this giant crowd gathering at Mizpah. And you're like, this is a rebellion. These people were under our thumb. You know, we read in later stories that they're extracting things from Israel and charging them money and stuff like that. And, and so they're like, this is bad. This is a rebellion. We, we got to go, go get them before they can kind of marshal their forces and, and march against us. And if you look at verse 7, the Philistine response to the revival meeting is like, let's get the army. <laughs> like, get, bring, out, bring out the army. Bring all of our soldiers. And it says, the lords of the Philistines... Like the rulers of all their cities are bringing out their armies. They're on their way. They're going to put down this revolt. Now, if you've been with us through this First Samuel series, here's a question. How did Israel respond when they had to fight the Philistines before? Well, we've seen a couple times they just went ahead and fought <laughs> without seeking the Lord, without offering any prayers. Didn't go great. They just lost. One time they had a different strategy. They're like, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Maybe that'll force God to fight on our side. They didn't pray. They didn't seek God. That went even worse. That was like their, their worst loss in, in 1 Samuel so far. So really, if we didn't read to verse 8 yet, if Lex had stopped at verse 7, which way were they going to respond? We're like, what are they going to do? They tell Samuel in verse 8, keep praying. Please don't stop praying for us. And specifically, they tell Samuel, hey, would you pray that God will rescue us from the Philistines? It's hard to overstate how different this response is to anything we've seen in 1 Samuel so far. They aren't trusting themselves. They aren't trusting God's furniture. They're saying, would you ask God himself to intervene? And Samuel's like, okay, I'll keep praying. 
And he keeps praying, and then he sacrifices a lamb, and he cries out to God on behalf of Israel. And the end of verse 9 is incredibly different to what we've seen so far in 1 Samuel. It says, the Lord answered him. Yet, all this time, the Philistine army is getting closer. Israel's like in a worship service, but like outside, it's like the, the, the tramp of feet and the clank of, of swords and shields and armor is happening. And it says the Philistines draw near to attack Israel. And, and what happens next? Does Israel get out their swords and, and, you know, whatever, and spears and start fighting? No, it says God intervenes. And we don't know exactly what happens. He thunders against them. Was it a thunderstorm? You know, maybe. But he throws them into confusion. And if you look at the way the story is written, they are defeated. Before any warrior of Israel gets into the field and starts slashing people or whatever, they've already won. It's already over. God won. You know, but for good measure, they go and chase after them or whatever. But I, I want to reflect for a moment on what this battle with the Philistines teaches us about repentance in action, about, about, about the repentance in action. See, no sooner does Israel confess their sins than this trial arises to test their faith. And really, before them lie two paths. Are they going to walk in this sort of newfound or, or renewed faith in God, or are they going to revert to their old ways? When the Philistines come at them with all their army that's beaten them over and over and over for 20 years, what are they going to do? Well, do you know what a counterfeit is? Counterfeit like art or money or whatever. Counterfeits aren't just fakes. That's like monopoly money or something. A counterfeit is something that looks like the real thing, but is in fact a false thing. There's a kind of counterfeit repentance that sometimes takes place in our lives. Maybe you can identify with this. And I think the best name for it is self-pity. Self-pity doesn't feel sorry about sin. It merely feels sorry about the consequences sin brings to our lives. I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, you have a bad temper. You get angry easily. And one day you're out driving and some idiot driver in front of you stops quickly and, and, and you rear end them. But it was their fault. They were driving terribly. And you absolutely lose your mind. And you get out of your car and you run to their car and you just punch them or something, whatever. You, you, just, you just slug the person who's driving. I know this sounds extreme, but stay with me. You get arrested, charged with assault. And you're like, okay, it's one thing to feel bad and to feel sorry for all the damage you've caused. The damage to the car, maybe damage to this person, all, all the consequences you're experiencing. Maybe you get fined, maybe you get jail time, community service, whatever. Feeling sorry for all the consequences, all the bad that's happened, that doesn't mean you repented of it. It just means you got caught. It, it, just, it just means that you're sorry for, for how it ended. True repentance, that's kind of a counterfeit repentance, true repentance is when you're sorry, not just for the consequences, but for the sin itself. And I'll give you a test. The test for self-pity goes like this. If all the human consequences for sin evaporate, would you still be sorry you did it? So, so let's say you speak meanly to your spouse and your spouse doesn't care at all. You don't have to sleep on the couch. You don't have to, there's no consequences at all for speaking meanly to your spouse. Are you still sorry? If no one minded that you skimmed some money off the top of your company, they're like, nah, everybody does that, no big deal. Would you? If all the consequences you can think of, if they all evaporate, what would you do? That's the test. And we can take it kind of a step further. What if you face consequences for doing good, for acting rightly? 
Not just not paying for sin. What if you paid for doing good? What, what would you still do it? Because this is what Israel is finding themselves in. They're about to pay in blood for their repentance. The Philistines are coming with their army. The giant unknown is, will they turn back to their old ways when God doesn't, quote, work for them anymore? Did, he re- did they actually repent? And the reason we know they repented, we knew it was true and not counterfeit, is because they clung to their repentance, even as the Philistines bore down on them. Let's return to that financial example I gave you earlier. Let's say that you, like me, feel convicted about how much you love money. And you're like, you've decided, I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to trust God. Great. (laughs) The, The true test, though, is not the moment of repentance. That's a good first step. Please do that. The true test is when the credit card payment can't get made. Or the, or, the, or the test is when you have to call up good friends and say, we can't go on the annual vacation, we can't afford it this year. Or the fun money for the month has to go to groceries or the hydro bill or something, and it's not spent on fun things anymore. What will you do then? What will you cling to when there are consequences to repentance, not just to not doing sin? So Israel's facing this giant army, and they cling to their repentance. Let's talk about part three, God's help in repentance. The battle narrative is one verse, which like inside baseball look at sermon preparation, that means the battle is not the point of the chapter. If the narrator has has 17 verses or whatever and only has one verse for the battle, it's like, oh, it's fun, a battle. It's not the point. (laughs) The, The point is all the other stuff that's happening around the battle. But God defeats the Philistines. Israel jumps in, chases them off all the way down to this place, Beth Car. We don't even know where it is. A ways. They chase them. They chase them a ways down the road. And then they take back all these, all these towns that they've lost. Samuel, though, takes a large stone and sets it up. It says, uh, presumably on its end, or in a way that's more noticeable, in between Mizpah and Shen, and names it Ebenezer. Now, this isn't the first time a stone's been set up to mark something important that God did. When Israel first enters the, the promised land, Joshua chapter 4, uh, they, go, they go through the Jordan River in this miracle, and Joshua tells the people, take 12 stones from the middle of the bottom of the river, where, which was dry ground at that point, and bring them up to the bank, and we'll, we'll make a little tower here, a little altar, so that it'll be a memorial to what God did. That was the first one we have. And some people are like, why are we doing this? And he says, it's going to remind our children and our grandchildren. We're going to tell the story. Whenever we walk by that place and see that pile of stones, we're going to tell the story. God brought us out of Egypt. He cared for us in the wilderness. And he, and he, and he brought us to this promised land. And now, hundreds of years after that first entry, Samuel again sets up a stone to memorialize what God has done. And he names it Ebenezer. Now, this is, this is a hard quiz question. Where have we heard this name before in 1 Samuel? You can think about it for a second. Where have we heard the name Ebenezer before in 1 Samuel? Ebenezer was the name of the place where Israel lost its first battle against the Philistines that led to them deciding to bring the ark in the battle, 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. Try, try to understand, like, in their collective memory, at least of the adults, was this tragic loss that led to an even greater tragic loss. And, and Samuel's like, we're going to name the stone that. <laughs> we're going we're to name the stone after that. It, it reminds Israel not just of God's great faithfulness, but also of their own folly. It reminds them, God has helped us, but look what happens when you lose faith. And now look what happens when you trust. And Ebenezer means stone of help. 
And this is kind of what Samuel says. He says, this rock, this rock that we're setting here, however big it was, it means till now the Lord has helped us. And by the way, we sang Camp Come Thou Fount this morning. When you sing in the future, now when you're like, I'm raising an Ebenezer, what does that mean? This is what it means. You're, you're saying till now God has helped us. But let's just think about this for a moment. If you've been with us in this series, what do you remember about what's happened? Well, do you remember the defeat at Shiloh? when 30,000 Israelites died? Do you remember the scene at Beth Shemesh when God struck down 70 of them for looking wrongly at the ark? What about that day when Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and Phinehas' wife all died? What about the 20 years of oppression at the hand of the Philistines? Like, I think we we should be asking the question, help? What do you mean help? How has God been helping them? I think the skeptic comes along and reads this passage and reads the carnage of 1 Samuel and says, what do you mean help? Shouldn't the inscription on the stone be, till now God has been mean to us, but I guess he came around? Stone of help? I think a lot of us, some of us, look at our own lives and we say something similar. Till now God has helped me? What are you talking about? Prove it, pastor. Maybe you look across the landscape of your life and think, I've got tragedy covered. Where is the miraculous thundering from heaven? When does that part happen? I got plenty of defeats. How about a victory? How exactly has God helped his people? Well, here's the answer. You might not like it, but here's what I think it is. God's help involves both chastening and deliverance. Chastening and deliverance. And for seven chapters, frankly, it's been mostly chastening. God has helped Israel to see, this is what life is like without me. (laughs) And it's brutal. And it's full of death and destruction. It's God opening their eyes. This is what it's like. You want to go your own way? You just want to be like one of the other nations? Okay, you're the weakest. Everyone's going to beat up on you and invade your land. Chastening, and sometimes it takes pain and difficulty and suffering for us to hear God, to see him. And Israel had to learn that lesson painfully. And sometimes so do we. Now, what about the deliverance? You might still say, look, I'm still waiting on deliverance. I'm still waiting on rescue. Where's the salvation? What I can tell you is this. God does not promise to deliver from pain and suffering and physical enemies. We hope for that. We pray for that at times. It's not guaranteed. What is guaranteed, what is promised Christians, is deliverance from our greatest enemies of sin and suffering and death. And all through this passage are sprinkles of hope for those of us who are waiting on the salvation of God. I want to retell the story of this passage just quickly, but I want to remove all the names, and I want you to listen, and I want you to think about what you hear. There was once a people who were under the oppression of their enemies. They had no hope. They had no weapons that could drive them off. The enemy was far stronger than them. They were, they were basically helpless. And yet this people realized they were helpless. And they cried out for deliverance. They asked to be saved. They asked the only righteous man they knew if he could do something for them. They knew if he doesn't help us, then we are finished. And at just the right time, as the enemies were closing in, a lamb without spot or blemish was sacrificed. 
And the wrath of God and the power of God was turned away from that people and directed towards their enemies. The enemies were scattered. The victory was won. The people joined in the fight, but it turned out it was already basically over. And a monument was set up to remind people that salvation wasn't from them, but from God. That forever, generation after generation, children and grandchildren could look back and say, that was the moment, that was the decisive moment when God rescued us. That story sounded like anything to you? This chapter is the gospel sort of written, written small letters. It's a hinting at a lasting salvation that was going to come, that there would be a monument set up to a victory where a lamb would be slain, that a desperate people would be saved, that in the place where they'd only known defeat, where they were writing defeat over and over, that salvation would come exactly through that place. In some ways, we ought to inscribe this word Ebenezer across all of human history. (laughs) Till now, God has helped us. Not always the way we wanted. Sometimes it's been chastening. But in general, he is rescuing a people. He's renewing a broken world. And very finally, we haven't answered the question of why we we repent, but I think it's answered in this. Because on a hill far away, a savior died for his people. That there was a greater rescue, a greater salvation was coming. And the reason we can turn from our idols is because he has made a way for us to turn from them. And that's my simple invitation to you. Repent, (laughs) return to the Lord, put away your idols and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And we are glad for these stories of how you work in our lives and it thousands of years between us and them. And yet we realize how similarly you work in our lives today. How sometimes you chasten, but sometimes you rescue how we need to repent and turn to you. Please open our eyes and ears that we might see you and behold Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.